Hey everyone, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes released on time for the scheduled reading of the week. Unfortunately, this hasn't always been possible. We made the decision to release this episode with minimal editing rather than release it late. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of friends, family, and church. We're looking for additional volunteers to help with editing the podcast in time to get them released. The time commitment may vary from four to six hours per week. If you would like to help, send us a message on our Facebook page at Latter-day Peace Studies or email us at latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. We are also openly asking for donations to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. You can donate through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, and clicking on Get Involved, then scrolling down to the donate box. Thank you to all who have helped out over the years and donated to the project. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, everyone. This is Ben. This week, we are talking about 2 Samuel and also a part of First Kings up to chapter 11. Now, Christopher is still experiencing some back pain, and he's not able to join me this week. And because of the, the nature of the content of the reading this week, I didn't think it was really fair to try to pull in someone else that hasn't really been following us along exactly the same way. And so I am going to give it a go by myself this week. I have never done this before. Actually, we've never done this on... Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me that I know of before. We've been doing this podcast for a little over two years now, and this is the first time I think we're trying to do an episode solo. So this is me. I'm going to give it a try, see how it goes. Unfortunately, we will be missing some key insight from Christopher. I really, my gospel discussion rests heavily on a back and forth dialogue. And so not having that, I'm, I'm really not sure how things are going to come out, but I'm willing to give it a try and the show must go on, right? So we're going to dig into 2 Samuel and the first part of 1 Kings today on this episode. Now, 2 Samuel is going to sort of go through the consolidation and the establishment of David's kingdom through some political maneuvering and military campaigns. These would be very typical of ancient societies or ancient military campaigns and, and empires that are spreading or kingdoms that are establishing themselves. Remember, this is kind of the beginning of the Iron Age. Historically, we're speaking about roughly the 10th century BC. Exact dates are difficult. The records that we have here, the actual text we have here, isn't really concerned with history the way that we think of it, as we've talked about before. And so 
It's difficult to pull exact dates out of things or time spans, even though it says things like David reigned for 40 years or Solomon reigned for 40 years. Like these are actually symbolic indications of the complete or fullness of, of their reign generations, not actual number indications of how long they really reigned. And so those, that doesn't tell us as much as we would like it to. But in in the text here, there's sort of an ambiguous perspective with regards to David. Sometimes the text can be very pro-David, and sometimes it's pretty critical of him. Other times it is very apologetic of certain events, trying to explain them in a certain way. Um, at one point, some of the commentary talks about how it, it protests too much, right, in the Shakespearean way, in terms of it saying things happened in a certain way or didn't happen in a certain way, uh, almost to say that, that they actually did, right? Because they're focusing too much on the fact that they didn't. This is almost like an apologetic response to accusations in some ways. So as we go through the narrative of David, you, you will notice as you read through this that there are sort of this ambiguous perspective of the character. The character of David himself is is pretty ambiguous, but it's also very central to Israelite history. David, he's the blueprint of a monarch, right? For the Israelites. He's just, he's powerful, he's pious. He is the prototypical, in a sense, Messiah, right? He, he's actually the anointed one. He's been anointed. So that means Messiah in that literal sense. But, you know, from the time of David, you also have the Israelites, particularly the Jews, looking for someone who is a true successor to David, a Messiah. And this was often by some people viewed as a, a political type of succession. When it gets to Jesus's time and, and afterwards, as, as Christians take on that tradition, they see Jesus as the fulfillment of an archetypical Messiah. And so this is in many ways, a less of a political thing and more looking at a religious or spiritual type of fulfillment. And so that's sort of the tradition that Christians in general come from and Latter-day Saints really interpret that way as well. Jesus is called in his time in the Gospels, son of David by many people. This is again an indication that he would be seen as a person that has the right to succeed David politically and religiously in their tradition. This is primarily because Judah the tribe of Judah and their identity survived the exile into Babylon and then the return, while other tribes didn't really survive that process. They lost or forgot their identity. And so the stories and the legacy and expectations behind this messianic Davidic line rest within the tribe of Judah. The, the story here, particularly in Second Samuel, but even extending into First Kings and, and beyond, is very complex. We start getting much more complicated in the narrative here. We've got a lot of characters, and you could probably do like a, a mini TV series out of this. But as you'll notice when you read it, the uh, there would have to be a mature rating for this. This is very serious stuff that's going on in the text here. Things that you know we wouldn't typically let children watch. <laughs> so we've got lots of war, lots of violence, lots of sexual innuendo. 
you know, a, a lot of things happening that uh, might be really difficult to, to wrestle with from a biblical inerrancy point of view, for sure. But also there's some theological trips here that we need to, to look for. And, and then just how we posit biblical or prophetic characters within their context and, and how we view that, whether we view certain things as prescriptive or descriptive. As we get into 2 Samuel, the story, story essentially starts off with the civil war. Now, ostensibly, David you know, just succeeds Saul, like he's supposed to be the next king. But historically, that's not how things happen. You don't just have a peaceful transition of power. That's very rare. And even the text bears this out, that the supporters of Saul, his family and those who supported him, are still holding out against David. They think David is, in a sense, a usurper. And so the civil war starts. And we have these stories going through of, of David battling the remnants of the supporters of Saul until you get all of Israel united under the tribe of Judah. So at first, David is crowned king of Judah, and then he is able to consolidate his power over all of Israel and bring all the tribes under his rule. So I'm going to start looking at a few points in the text that stood out to me that I want to make some points on. Some of them are going to be doctrinal or theological points. Others are going to be historical points. Others might be interpretive points, idiomatic points. And, and that's actually where I want to start is, is in chapter 3, verse 25, as we go along in the story, we get this phrase and it's used, it's been used several times before this and it will be used several times after this. And I don't think that Christopher and I have addressed this. And so I want to address this phrase. And it's the coming in and going out. This is, you know, it's not exactly clear what it's talking about when it says this coming in and going out. When we turn to chapter 3, verse 25, we get, You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to learn your comings and goings and to learn all that you are doing. Okay, so again, there's other points in the story where it talks about comings and goings or coming in and going out. This is a reference to military maneuvers or military campaigns. Okay, there's another point where it says, I'm not able to come in and go out. You know, it's meaning that I don't have the, either the ability, capacity, or training to lead the army, the military. And here in this verse, the context is it's talking about spying, right, upon a people and seeing their military maneuvers. So the, again, this is an idiom that just is referring specifically to military maneuvering. Next, what we have in the narrative is David conquering Jerusalem, and then he's going to make it his capital. Now, this is a very common thing, typical ancient practice for a ruler when they are consolidating power and establishing a state or kingdom that they need to choose an appropriate city place for a capital. And there's a lot of factors that go into this. In this particular case, David seems to have chosen Jerusalem for its geographic position, which places it sort of on neutral ground between Israel, which is like the rest of the tribes, and the tribe of Judah or the land that, that Judah occupies. And so Jerusalem becomes sort of a representation of the unification of all of the tribes under David's rule. Later, we have Jerusalem sometimes called Zion. And, you know, this term gets used and, and thrown about for a lot of other 
purposes and contexts as well, particularly within a Latter-day Saint context. But in the content, in the Old Testament context, at least here, this name arises. This seems to be one of the first indications of, of use of this name. And Zion is actually the name of a particular hill in Jerusalem. And that name of that hill then becomes associated with the city itself and then becomes used as an alternate name for the city. Another idiomatic thing going on here that we, we haven't addressed and we probably should have before now, but now is a good time to address it as well. If we go to chapter 6, verse 1, we get this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Okay, so all over in the New Testament, especially the chapters that are going to be talking about wars, where you have military units and it's numbering them. This word thousand is very close to a term that is denoting a military unit. So thousand in our language is referencing a particular number. It's a specific number of people. But here thousand actually is very close to a word that is the name of a, mili- a type of military unit. Now, how it came to be so close may have been associated with the actual number, thousand, but the idea here is that just because you have 30,000 doesn't mean there's actually 30,000 people. It could mean that there's 30 units, 30 military units, and that if at one point those military units did ideally have a thousand people in them, at this point, these units aren't each a thousand people. Some could have a few hundred. Some could have, you know, just a hundred. Some could have, you know, five or six hundred. And so basically these units are never going to be at full strength in terms of a thousand or more. This comes up if you ever look at Roman history and legions, you know, you have like a theoretical size of a Roman legion, but the legions are never at, you know, their full capacity. And so you sometimes get estimates of the the army that are way over estimates because they're counting by the legions, not by the actual number of soldiers. So again, this is all over in these books, the use of the term thousand. And whenever you see that, you could be a little skeptical of the actual count and say, okay, this is talking about a number of military units. It may not really mean that there's actually 30,000 people that we're talking about here. Later in this chapter, we get something interesting happening, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to go over to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6 in 2 Samuel. These say, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. Okay, so... What is going on here? David is actually officiating in a sacrifice, okay? And an ephod is an apron. He's wearing an apron. Why an apron? Well, if you are engaging in a sacrifice, you are preparing a holy meal in a sense, right? You're preparing the food that you're offering to the deity, to God. And so even today, what do we do when we're preparing foods? We wear an apron, especially, you know, in in that time when they were actually slaughtering the animal and then putting it on the altar to burn it or cook it, they would be wearing an apron. Now, this this seems like an, an oddly practical 
thing to have in a in a religious rite, but you know, it's very likely it started off as a practical thing and then became associated with the particulars of the rite itself and symbolic after that of priestly activities. And then as a, a, a next step from that, an apron becoming symbolic of the priesthood authority itself. Now we see this in our tradition, right? So we use the symbolism of the apron to indicate authority in our temple worship and our temple tradition. And so that would be familiar to people as well. So this is really what this is talking about. Now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about, well, what do you mean David having priestly authority? He's not a Levite. Very good question. That question, though, becomes anachronistic in terms of what's going on here versus what is ostensibly the rule that they're supposed to be following. You know, when I thought about this, like as an apron, being a symbol of authority, I kind of thought if you ever have a, a family gathering and somebody's doing the barbecue, right, they may have the apron on and they're the one cooking, right? And it's, and it, maybe that apron says something in particular on it, you know, kiss the chef or whatever. So, like, this apron is sort of a representation of their duty, their job, their authority as they're cooking the food on the grill. And, and I just thought that that was so interesting that that. That concept already has re-entered our society in a way that may have been similar to how it entered into their religious rite and symbolic practice and then became a much deeper and more meaningful symbol along the route, completely detached from potentially its, its original practical implementation. So uh, interesting point here that David is wearing an apron as he's officiating. As the story progresses, you know, again, David is doing all these things to consolidate his kingdom. He's dealing with issues within his family. He's dealing with wars and complexities of defending borders and consolidating power. We're going to come next to the story in chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, that is probably the most famous story of the section that we're reading, and that is Bathsheba. We get this at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, so I have heard this convincingly, previously I should say, I have heard this explained, interpreted as, okay, this is a time when kings should be going out to battle. Like there's this moral obligation or, or duty that they should be going out to battle and that David isn't going out to battle. And that's what's getting, that's going to get him into trouble because he's not where he's supposed to be. Right. I don't think that's necessarily a bad interpretation, but the scholarly commentary mentions that linguistically speaking, there's not necessarily that implication. Really, this is just a time indicator saying that this is the course of when this stuff happened. It's the time of year when kings normally go out to battle. So it's explaining the situation. It's not imposing a moral judgment on David for his failure to go out to battle. I mean, that moral judgment is going to come later, right, <laughs> for what happens. But the fact that he's not at battle isn't necessarily, he's not demeaned for that or, or, or judged critically for that necessarily. I get that it can be interpreted that way. I don't think it's necessarily a bad one, but it doesn't have to be interpreted that way. So we get the story of, of Bathsheba, and this should be pretty familiar to people. You know, David, essentially, he's on the top of his house, you know, houses there have flat roofs, so you can go up on top of them. And 
he he sees a woman bathing in an adjacent house. This house isn't very far away from him and from his house. Now, in this society, your proximity to the royal residence indicated your status, right? So this person's house, who we find out is Uriah, uh, was very close to David. In fact, he ends up that Uriah is part of David's royal guard, like he's a very important character within the military of David, and he's a very respected, prominent person. And so as it turns out, David would have known who Uriah was once he got the name of the person. Oh, I know who Uriah was. And this might have been somebody that, you know, he knew fairly well, which kind of adds a little more sting to the story, I think. So what happens? David sees Bathsheba bathing and he says, hey, go find out who that is. And then finds out who she is and says, hey, send her to me. Well, obviously in ancient society, you get a summon from the king and you go. You don't say, hey, I don't have time. You know, I got other stuff I got to do. Too busy today. You know, let's try next week or something like that. You come when the king calls. And so Bathsheba does. And we have this scenario where David lies with Bathsheba. She conceives. And when they find out that, David calls Uriah back from battle. He's out of battle. And he tells Uriah, hey, go spend time with your wife. The idea here is that David is trying to save face. He doesn't want it to appear like anything happened between him and Bathsheba. Even though what's odd to this uh, about this to me is that everybody would know, right? Like he, he sent his servants to get her. They came to him. Like everybody knows that relations took place. So it's not clear to me exactly what David is, is trying to cover up here. It could be that this is more him lying to himself. You know, he's worried that he's not going to be able to deal with the consequences of this down the road. And it's not so much other people knowing as it is just him dealing with the guilt of it. And if he can sort of do something that alleviates his guilt, then he won't have to confront that. And that seems to be a little more than he is necessarily like embarrassed about what happened. So Uriah comes back, but Uriah is still dedicated to the army and he's a loyal soldier and, and has a particular duty to fulfill. So he does not go into his wife. He sleeps outside of his house. Now, this causes an issue for David. So David says, well, the I guess the best we can do is is have Uriah killed so that then we'll have Bathsheba become my wife. And then that solves this whole issue, right? Well, obviously all of that happens. And then we have Nathan the prophet come to David, give him the parable of, of the man with, with one lamb and the man with many and the man with many killing the the lamb of the man that only had the one lamb and David pronouncing judgment upon that man is is the intent of the story, thereby David pronouncing judgment upon himself. Then we get this pronouncement that the sword will never depart from David in his house because of these things that David has, has done. He killed Uriah, took his wife. These are grievous sins. And so the consequences of this, according to the text, by God are that there will be violence that attends David's house. Now, this seems to be like an etiological pronouncement, right? We talked about this many times, etiological meaning just like the origin or to explain how something came about. And so 
it could be very easy to say, oh, you know, how come David after afterwards there was just so much violence with the succession and then civil war and rebellion and stuff like that and all these awful things happen and you say, well, we can point back to this particular time. And so sometimes this is, you know, revisionist where you, you go back and you find some point in history and say, oh, that must have been the problem. In fact, that that's kind of the whole premise of of a lot of this Deuteronomistic history is that it's it's revisionist in the sense that it's going back into pre-exilic history and saying why were why were the Babylonians able to take us over and all this stuff and they're finding all these reasons that the that this happened because God was supposed to protect them. Well, if he didn't protect them, that means they were sinning in some way. So that Deuteronomistic history sees all of these problems, you know, them worshiping other gods and and so forth. The result of this union between David and Bathsheba is that Bathsheba does become pregnant and she gives birth to a child that they named Jedediah. But this child dies, becomes sick and dies. And in the text seems to indicate that this is like a just recompense for the sin of David. But yet we see this prayer and pleading of David to God on behalf of the child, but the child still dies. Then we have Solomon, who's born from Bathsheba. And the the name Solomon actually means his replacement. So they name him Solomon because he's kind of the replacement for Jedediah. But then later, it's interesting in, in 1 Kings, we'll get to this, the name Solomon as a replacement also isn't just indicating that it's a replacement for Jedediah, but he's also the replacement for David. Right, say so he's David's successor. This really comes into question because David has a lot of children, even sons. And so the question of who should succeed David isn't completely clear. But you know, there's a lot of particulars and stuff that, that happen that end up making it Solomon, and we would discuss that a little bit now when we get to second king or first kings. But in any case, that's what the name Solomon means. And there's a mention of his birth here at this point in the text because it's obviously a foreshadowing of Solomon being the successor. It's not likely that Solomon really would have been named if he weren't the successor to David unless there was some particular occurrence that happened with him. Other, other David's children are named, but only when there's something particularly significant that happens with him. You know, Absalom, for instance. Before we get to Absalom and his rebellion, however, I'm going to stop at another little key theological point in theological development that we see here in chapter 15. Here we have another example of David worshiping. And here, David worships God in what's called a, quote, high place. So a high place of worship or a high place of sacrifice is it's just another place of doing sacrifice. So, you know, they built altars, but they also often went up on a mountain or, or high area, right, to do sacrifices. This is a very common motif all over in the Old Testament, starting way back. You know, we see it with with Abraham going up on Mount Moriah, right, to to perform sacrifices. What's interesting about this isn't that, you know, it's another instance of that. It's that this specific act is is explicitly prohibited by the Deuteronomistic law that we find in Deuteronomy, where Moses says, hey, these sacrifices are only supposed to happen at the tabernacle or the temple, per se, right? When you've got that, you should be sacrificing there. However, we have David here, that is actually worshiping God at a high place. What this tells us isn't that David is actually doing something wrong. What this tells us is that, as we discussed in our episode on Deuteronomy, these injunctions 
in Deuteronomy or these these imperatives to not sacrifice in that way or to only sacrifice in a certain way are actually later religious reforms that were written back into the text in Deuteronomy. But these religious reforms didn't come until, you know, 7600 BC, well after David's time. And so we get these little remnants in the text of these things that are happening that are ostensibly prohibited by the law of Moses, but were still being practiced regularly at this time because the religious reforms that we find in Deuteronomy really hadn't come about yet, weren't written back into it. We see little references to them here and there, but again, because this text is a compilation, a conglomeration of a lot of different sources, these things you know, sort of slip through in a sense. We see these mentions of this, which, you know, hey, wait, that's not quite the way it should be happening. Okay, let's talk about the Absalom Rebellion. So I'm not going to get into all the details about how this comes about. You know, obviously you can read the story and find out. This is part of the pretty explicit part of the scriptures here. You've got some incest going on and murder and rebellion and rape and all kinds of terrible things that are going on here in these chapters. Absalom ultimately, though, uh, after many years, is defeated. And even after him sort of becoming active reigning king for a while, and, and David himself kind of being in a sense in exile, he still is is able to defeat Absalom. Or I should say his his military defeats Absalom. David doesn't do anything in particular to overcome Absalom, but it's done by his his commanders, his his military people. And David is is very distraught over the death of his son and, and how this comes about. The news is brought to him. He's mourning this. He's he's not satisfied that his enemy is defeated. He had hoped for a better resolution to the situation, which would have preserved the life of his son. Notwithstanding the fact that all the awful things that his son has done. This is a son who has murdered and raped David's own family members, right? I mean, there's a there's a point where Absalom takes over Jerusalem and he goes and takes over David's harem, right? And is sleeping with all of David's wives and concubines. I mean, this is how he's asserting himself as king, but obviously the implications are there. So Absalom is also... He's not only doing those things, but he's engaged in open rebellion and war against his father for the kingdom. Total rebellion. So here when we get to David's reaction to all of this, as I was thinking about it, I had some some thoughts about a conversation that often will, will come up in the course of a discussion of principles of, of nonviolence. And it, almost without fail, I, I could say, the, the critics of nonviolence, they'll often pose some sort of a scenario in which there's a murderer and or a rapist that's in the act of attacking your family. And then they say, well, what would you do in this situation? I think the implication here seems to be that there's only two courses of action. One is that you do nothing at all. And two is that you try to stop them by violent means. Okay, you you know I, the idea is that you would kill that person. You stop them from doing this by killing them. Doing nothing would be posited as an immoral thing 
an immoral choice to take because it would result in the death or rape of those that you have a responsibility to protect. And so you're not fulfilling that responsibility. That's immoral. Thus, you would say that the obvious conclusion to the scenario, the obvious moral conclusion is that violence is a moral act to take in that situation in order to resolve the problem, in order to fulfill your responsibility to protect. Now, I should say a full treatment of this scenario would probably require a a long discourse. I'm not going to go into all of that how we would really approach the scenario. I I really want to touch on a particular point as it relates to this story of David. And in that generic scenario that I just posed, the attacker is an unknown, faceless, evil person. In fact, he might as well be an animal in the mind of the critic, right? Just like a bear or something. A rabid bear. However, consider some possible context to the scenario. Okay, what if this were the context of the scenario? What if the attacker is your own child who you love dearly, just as David loved Absalom? Now, what possibilities suddenly present themselves to you on how to resolve the situation non-violently, or at least in a way that doesn't involve the killing of your offending child? What possibilities suddenly present themselves to you on how to resolve the situation non-violently, or at least in a way that doesn't involve the killing of your offending child? That is, what, to what lengths might you instead sacrifice yourself to mediate the outcome? Okay, so I'm not going to give really my answers to these questions. These are rhetorical in some sense, okay? I would simply say that however absurd or improbable this scenario might be, it's at least equally absurd and improbable that the scenario would not involve someone who God loves with equal tenderness, the same love that you have for your child. When we come to view others as God sees them, these false dichotomies and othering that we do has a really hard time sticking and staying in place. So here in chapter 18 of Second Samuel, we have this, verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now, departing from that a little bit, but tangential to this scenario here, is David's expressiveness, his his poetic ability. So many of the Psalms are attributed to David. He's very possibly the actual author of poems and psalms that we find throughout the Bible. It's also possible that the work may be that of a royal poet, you know, someone that belonged to the court and signs David's name to things. But he, you know, he's working on David's behalf, but he's like the royal poet, so to speak, right? However, I would just say that 
particularly the Psalms and, and the poems we see here, they seem of a very personal and, and intimate nature, such that I tend to believe it was actually David who composed them. And so there's pretty significant scholarly agreement that that is likely the case, that David is the actual author of many of these things that are attributed to him, which is pretty significant to posit like an ancient monarch as being, you know, this great literary figure. It's pretty unique, right? Okay, so we're going to step into First Kings now. I know, I know that there's a lot of content and story that I'm not touching on here. Frankly, if Christopher were on this with me, we might touch on a little bit more. But since Deuteronomy, this is the longest reading. So there's just too much content here to really go in, in depth on any anything in particular. I'm, I'm going to touch on the things that I think are of particular significance to the themes that Christopher and I have been bringing out in our reading and things that are going to drive this story forward and, and relate to our religious tradition the most. Here in First Kings, we get the reign of Solomon. Okay, so Solomon is renowned for his wisdom. The theology that we find in First Kings is, as I've been saying, largely Deuteronomistic. What this means is there's, there's two particular characteristics of, of Deuteronomistic history, or, or theology, I should say, not history. One is that it's strictly monotheistic, okay? Not, not monolatrous like before. Like We get these statements like, you know, Jehovah is the, is the only God. Right? He's, there's no God but Jehovah. That is Deuteronomistic in nature. That's not you know, proto-Israelite theology. Okay? The second thing is a centralization of the temple worship to the tabernacle or specifically to the temple building itself. Before the Deuteronomistic reforms, you had a, a decentralized worship where altars were legitimate and LSF. And we, we've, we've gone over this multiple times. I've even brought examples from the Book of Mormon on this. Another sort of, I say, innovation that comes along in this Deuteronomistic theology that we find here in First Kings is when Solomon is giving the, the prayer, what, what I would call the dedicatory prayer for the temple. Now, it's not necessarily termed that, but like in our tradition, that's basically what it is. He's giving this dedicatory prayer for the temple, and he talks about the, the presence of God it seems to be more of a symbolic presence, not a literal presence. Now, if you go back and we look at what Exodus and Leviticus say and, and how they talk about the presence of God, that is a literal presence, right? I mean, God is there. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's between the cherubim. Moses goes in and sees him and communes with him. Like, this is a literal presence. And what we have is this, this reform or, or innovation within this theology that says, no, 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 God you know, doesn't dwell in the temple literally. He dwells in the heaven, and, and the temple is just sort of symbolic of his presence where we pray and, and connect. So that, that is, in my opinion, quite a change in what we mean by the temple. And, and this question still, you know, I would say, is extant in, a, in our religious tradition as well. You know, people say, okay— I, I hear things like the temple's literally the house of God. I say, okay, well, do you mean that God is literally there, or is he symbolically there, or is it both? And I think that this would be like if you post this question to a group of, you know, experienced, maybe endowed adults, there would be ensue quite a discussion. I, I don't know that there's like 
a really nailed down answer to this. You could pull up all kinds of different commentary and, and discussion about it. So I think that's to say that this tension between these two views even persists within our own religious tradition. The central happening of these first chapters of the first Kings, we go through the first 11 chapters, is the construction of the temple. Okay. Now, this is going to give strong allusions back to first and second chapters of Genesis. And if you guys are interested in, in how we approach that, if you haven't listened to it or if you haven't listened to it in a long time, I would go back and listen to those episodes on Genesis and creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We bring in John Walton and his discussion of creation and those chapters as a temple text. Okay, so like liturgically speaking, the Genesis 1 and 2, those chapters belong here in the temple time. Those chapters were used in the temple as a temple text to guide the, the ritual practice and experience of the people that were going there, just as they are, just as they are now in our temple experience. I should say that the Book of Kings is really not concerned with history in a sense of what literally happened. Okay, it's concerned with it in a sense of how God is operating in the course of the covenant with the Israelites. Kings who are concerned with this view of God, how he's interacting with the Israelites, they are treated well in the book of the books of Kings. They're considered, they're judged well. And those who don't, they don't regard God as being important to the Israelites in their development and, and establishment as a people, they're viewed negatively. Okay, so it, it doesn't matter like if a king was really prosperous and reigned a long time and, and the people were peaceful, if he doesn't hold those theological views and practices of what are considered orthodox by the Deuteronomistic tradition, then that king is judged negatively within the text. Whereas you may have a king that fights a bunch of wars, you know, maybe doesn't rain very long. You know, we could see all these other historical issues with their, their actual kingship. But if he has the right theology that, that fits with the Deuteronomistic thing, then he's going to be seen as a good king, right? So that, that's something important to keep in mind as you go through the books of Kings as well. In chapter three of First Kings, we have another example of them worshiping in high places. You know, Solomon goes and, and worships, in the, worships in the high place of sacrifice. This becomes justified because the temple doesn't exist yet, but there's a tabernacle, right? You know, this is my question. I'm reading this, you know, it's just like, okay, yeah, the temple doesn't exist, but the tabernacle is supposed to be there. So where's the tabernacle? Why are we not worshiping there? This was sort of a, maybe a tiny little drop in the, in the bottle of evidence that the tabernacle may have been written back into backwards into the sacred history to say, oh no, you know, like God's been with us all along. We had him in the desert. We built the tabernacle and, and all the way. And when we talked about that point, we said that there was this possibility, scholarly view, that the potential that the narrative of the tabernacle in the wilderness may have been a revisionist narrative, you know, something written back into history based on the existence of, of the Temple of Solomon and, and not necessarily extant in the, in the way that we see it in, in the text. This is a little piece of evidence that indicates that, that that's another possibility here. You know, that would be sort of a, a drop in that bucket of evidence. So really famous, probably the most famous story of Solomon happens here in, in chapter three, I think it is. And this is uh, the two harlots, two prostitutes that come to Solomon to adjudicate 
their dispute over a child. Now, as the story goes, both women had each had a child. During the night, one of the children died, and the both women now claim the other child as theirs. And Solomon decides to judge this by saying, okay, well, we'll just cut the baby in half and you can each have half of it. And one woman says, no, 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 don't do that. Keep the baby alive. Just give it to the other woman. That's fine. Just give it to her as long as it stays alive. And the other woman says, hey, let's, let's cut it in half. Let's be fair. Let's cut the baby in half and we'll each have a half. And Solomon uses this to sort of, you know, reveal to us the wisdom that he has, but, you know, reveal to us who the true mother is. And that's the mother that is more concerned with the life of the child, right, than her own loss. And that's just, there's so much within this story, but that point there really hit me, you know, about motherhood. That seems to be like a, a really central point about motherhood is it? it's someone who is willing to sacrifice their own comfort or loss or pain or fear for life. They value life over those things. And that just seems to be, you know, kind of a, a profound point to me. There's probably more to, you know, there's certainly more to it there, but that stood out to me this time. The story of the two harlots does sort of evoke allusions to, to Tamar, who back in Genesis, remember Tamar, you know, has a child with Judah. And that is the royal line that proceeds down to David. So this also has allusions to Ruth. Ruth playing that part of the woman who's who's crossing boundaries, doing things that are a little bit clandestine, right? And again, Ruth and Boaz have Obed, who is part of the, the royal line that ultimately brings about David. Also Bathsheba, right? So we have all these women who aren't aren't married to the men that they have children with, at first at least, right? They do are, are later married, but at first they are not married, at least in our like modern conceptualization of how marriage is supposed to happen. We talked about this before with the story of Ruth, that that's not necessarily how they viewed marriage. The way that we view marriage isn't, isn't exactly the same. Okay, so these types of relations are had within the same context of our moral implications of, of marriage, right? So we don't need to impose too much on that. But, it, you know, again, Bathsheba, she bears Solomon who is king. And then within the Christian tradition, these are all ancestors of Jesus. Okay. So like Jesus comes from this line of, of women who are willing to cross boundaries, you know, do things that are a little different from the way that we might expect within like a moralistic framework. Okay. This is a point that Aviva Zornberg brings out in her discussion on Ruth, which we recommended people go and, and listen to. So I'd say that. Okay, so we get here to the actual building of the temple. Now, David promised to build the temple, but Solomon is actually fulfilling this promise. The way the text does this is interesting because, you know, in, in one sense, it's saying, hey, David didn't really get around to do this, but David did promise to do it. And so his heart was in the right place, but Solomon is actually doing it. So it's kind of a way of honoring David, but really giving more of the particular kudos to, to Solomon for actually bringing this about. It's interesting how it sort of points to this fact because Solomon is able to build the temple, the text says, because he has rest, right? He's not always fighting all of these wars that David had to fight in order to establish the borders of the kingdom and, and so forth. This word rest is really interesting to me because... When we talked about creation in Genesis, and we mentioned John Walton, 
talking about this concept of rest, right? This is the Sabbath. This is the seventh day when the deity rests and is able to actually enter his temple and rest there. Now, rest doesn't mean do nothing. It means get down to the, the actual work of the thing, not the building or creation of it anymore, but the actual the actual work that you built the temple for in the first place, right? And you know, we used a lot of analogies to bring out this point. You know, a lot of times it might be like, okay, well, you spent all this time preparing dinner, but this is the time you actually sit down and eat it, as opposed to all the time that went into getting, you know, buying the ingredients at the store and following the recipe and putting it together and, you know, placing it on the dish, you're actually sitting down to eat it. So this is the rest, the, the, the concept here. The building of the actual temple took like seven years to build, something like seven years, but the dedication time was seven days. Okay, this is intentional. This is an actual seven days that corresponds to the seven days of creation in Genesis. And there's lots of parallels there. If you go through and you look at how the temple dedication came about, it does correspond to the seven days of creation, with the seventh day being the day when actually the high priest enters the temple and there's there's the rest. There is a sort of question here about the labor that is used to build the temple. I know that if Christopher were here recording with me, he would bring this up. And so I have to, apparently there was some forced labor used in building the temple. It's not clear exactly what forced labor this is. If this is of people that Israel has conquered, if this is of slaves among the Israelites, which is forbidden by Mosaic law, at least after six years, right? You can have indentured servants for six years and then they have to release the seventh. So it's not really clear exactly who these people are that are forced in labor, the building of the temple, but it does seem off, right? It does seem off that you would have someone who is a slave, even just in our modern context, by our modern estimations slave being forced to build the temple right that just seems totally off to the way that we we view these things christopher talked about this as as a point where they lose the plot the idea is that they're building a temple for god and they're supposed to be his special people and here they are using forced labor to do it so i don't really know a whole lot about it other than the, the text says that and it does seem a little bit off and and i think that's something to to consider when we come to this text and and think about what is this really saying and what is the historical context for this and why did they think that way so now in chapter six we get a description of the temple it is in three parts we have the vestibule which is like the entrance hall we have the nave which is like the main larger hall and then we have the the inner sanctuary the holy of holies right or the the most holy place these correspond in many ways to our modern temple worship progression where we go from telestial to terrestrial to celestial and so we we see a lot of the things that are happening here in the, in the temple within our tradition as well again in verse 9 of chapter 3 we get the completion of the work this is hearkening back to genesis again the completion of the creation Right, the completion of the temple, this is God's residence. Completion of the earth, this is God's residence, right? You know, then Adam and Eve take up station within the garden. This is God entering his temple. The architect that Solomon brings in for this is King Hiram. Now, there's something interesting here because like there's a King Hiram and then there's another Hiram who's the craftsman. And when I first saw Hiram, I was like, oh, you know, Masonic stuff. Well, it's not the King Hiram that's the Masonic Hiram. It's the craftsman Hiram. And this is the guy that is actually doing, you know, a lot of the, the finished work and, and, and stuff in the temple. This is the Hiram from the Masonic temple narrative. Those who have studied Masonic rites or are part of the order maybe will recognize the name. 
The only thing I'll mention is that the narrative of the Masonic rituals, it strongly influenced the temple endowment ceremony as presented by Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young to the early saints. And so there's there's a lot of comparisons to be made there for sure. In chapter seven, we get a mention of the molten sea, which is molten. It's not the sea that's molten, but it's the it's the container that the water is in is a cast or, or molten material. And this contains water. This is symbolic of the watery chaos at the beginning of creation that's subdued by God, right? So this is why this is outside at the beginning of the temple. It's not a direct representation of baptism as the ordinance of baptism, as some in the church might be eager to point out. Okay, that's It's not a representation of baptism. However, it does seem to be a representation of something similar to what baptism represents. Okay, so this isn't pointing at baptism. It's pointing at the same thing baptism points at, right? Waters of chaos, and we're going to bring order out of them, just like the creation, right? Baptism is also symbolic of that thing, but the actual molten sea thing and then the, the ordinance of baptism aren't particularly related, okay? Chapter 8, we get the account of the actual dedication of the temple. And man, if we had a whole podcast to do on this, I think I would go through and compare chapter 8's dedicatory prayer with DNC 109, which is Joseph Smith's dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. I Just reading through that, I saw right off the bat a lot of similarities. And so I don't doubt that Joseph Smith you know, would have looked at, at this a lot in, in taking themes and, and understanding for you know, the Kirtland Temple. That would, you know, just make sense. And so I see a lot of DNC 109 in First uh, Kings chapter 8 in, in Solomon's dedication. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but this is where we get that interesting point in the text that is the insistence that God doesn't dwell in the temple, but in heaven. This is an important theological point because it shows how things had changed since the time of Exodus and Leviticus when God literally did dwell among his people in the tabernacle. Okay, but now he's only said to dwell there sort of symbolically. This development went further with the Deuteronomistic influence, moving first from the prayer being located in the temple, and then within the, the course of this, this narrative that Solomon is speaking, it then isn't located in the temple, but in the direction of the temple, of the sanctuary. Okay, And then finally, we get this thing about the prayer being toward the city. Okay, even if the people aren't there, it's toward the city and the temple. Now, this presupposes the people wouldn't be in the city. Or, or actually, you know, it talks about with not even being in the country. Well, that's interesting because like, you know, if you're not there, you, you can't worship your God. That's the ancient mindset. That's why Moses couldn't worship and the people of Israel, they couldn't worship their God in Egypt. They said they had to go out three days. Like you can't do it when you're there. And so the, that was the, the ancient mindset. Well, why are they saying that you would be able to worship God? If you're in a different country, you're not around. Well, this is because at this point, this is a, a theological point that is Deuteronomistic that's inserted in the text in sort of an exile or post-exile period. And by that, I mean, you know, after 600 BC, when the people are brought into Babylonian captivity, exiled to Babylon, the, the theology and, and religious rites practice and, and stuff has to be in order to account for the fact that the people are in exile. And so just orienting yourself towards Jerusalem or towards the temple 
becomes a legitimate way of performing this prayer. And man, you know, if Christopher were here, he would definitely be talking about how this gets pulled into Islam, right? Because the tradition among the Muslims is that they first did pray towards Jerusalem, but then tradition moved in the direction of praying towards Mecca instead of Jerusalem. But but that's this is kind of where that concept comes from, right? From this injunction that you pray towards the temple. You know, this this might bring out an important point within the Book of Mormon narrative. We talked about how when we did our episode on Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomistic tradition making all these reforms within the 7th, 6th century would have been putting a lot of pressure upon Lehi and his family at the time. And it's very possible that they they were trying to hold on to the older traditions that were, you know, before these these reforms. And so when you see things like, you know, Lehi going three days out of Jerusalem and then building an altar and offering sacrifice, and when they're praying, they're not saying anything about praying towards Jerusalem, right? And and when they go to the new world, they're out of the country, right? By this, they should be praying towards Jerusalem, and, and they're not doing that. Well, this is because this is a later post-exilic innovation of the practice that you pray towards the city. Whereas the idea here would be that if Lehi and his family left Jerusalem at 600 BC, they wouldn't have been part of this this change, this post-exilic change to the practice. They would have continued with the way that they've always been doing it. And in fact, they just build their own temple. Nephi just builds his own temple when he gets to the new land. Now, this isn't really a, a point one way or the other, but but it does show that at least the the people operating within that that Book of Mormon framework could could have been looking at traditions that were pre-exilic, which makes sense for the time frame posited within the Book of Mormon. We do have an interesting part in Mosiah where King Benjamin is speaking, and all the people bring their tents and they orient them towards the temple. So this is kind of kind of the same idea that we see popping up within the Book of Mormon. I want to bring up two more points before we end that are in chapter eleven of First Kings. And one is kind of a, a humorous thing, and the other points again to sort of uh, some things we've talked about with relation to the Book of Mormon and, and traditions. When we get to verse 26 of chapter 11, we get a discussion about Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was one of the kings of Israel, right? Not Judah. And so this is, this is probably a political point, a jab being made here. And we've talked about this multiple times as well, how there's there's sort of these, this political rivalry going on because of the, the two different kingdoms. And Judah's record and narrative being the one that largely survives within the Old Testament, we see all these things that are sort of legitimizing Judah's authority to the kingship, to the monarchy. And so Jeroboam is, is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And the text says that his mother's name is Zeruah. So Zeruah isn't actually a name. Zeruah just means uh, having a skin disease. And and so they name Jeroboam's mother Zeruah or have, has a skin disease. This has to be probably one of the oldest uh, your mama jokes in the Bible. <laughs> but this seems to be kind of a political jab at Jeroboam to name his mother that in the text. <laughs> I thought that was kind of humorous. And then we get to verses 29 through 30 and we have this interesting story about the prophet Ahijah. He has a garment and he tears it into 12 pieces and 10 going with Jeroboam. You know, the, the idea here is that there's 10 tribes under the northern kingdom with Jeroboam. These are the 10 lost tribes that we talk about, right? And then one of those pieces is Judah. And then it's like, okay, well, there's one more piece. And it doesn't really talk about it in the text, but that one missing piece could be Benjamin, 
I've always assumed it was Benjamin because Benjamin sort of became a non-tribe in a sense. I thought Benjamin was sort of absorbed into Judah. But then some of the commentary talked about how it might be Simeon, that Simeon was absorbed into Judah. So I'll just say that I don't really know a whole lot about that particular thing because the commentary turns out to be contradictory to what I previously thought. But it is interesting that the garment is torn at a bunch of different pieces and each of the pieces represents a tribe. Because for me, this is reminiscent of Joseph's garment being torn, right? And when when it was torn by the beast... Where it wasn't really torn by the beast, right? The, the brothers tore it and then they put blood on it and they brought it to the father and they said, hey, this is, you know, a, a beast must have killed him. And Christopher and I had a discussion about whether it was torn or not torn and we brought in the Book of Mormon account about the garment being torn and, and decaying and everything. But all, all of that discussion sort of comes up for me when we, we get to Ahijah here that tears his garment into 12 pieces and this is symbolic of the different tribes. So I thought, I, I'd never noticed that in the text before. I didn't remember this story. I didn't even remember the name of the prophet Ahijah. So I thought that was an interesting point to bring out. And I would like to see if anybody has any more thoughts or, or commentary on this, particularly how it might relate to the story of Joseph and then how the Book of Mormon treats the, the tribes and separation of the tribes and stuff, because that's a central point to it. I'm really interested to hear any feedback or commentary that you guys have on the chapters as well. I know it's a lot to get through if you decide to read this. And, you know, Christopher has mentioned before, you know, we read through it so you don't have to, but I would highly encourage you to anyway. The Come Follow Me curriculum does not include reading all of these chapters, but I really think you miss important context if, if you if you skip them. And even if you just listen to them, you know, that's that, that's better. If you have a hard time with the King James Version, look at NRSV and try to pull not just the language there, but there's almost always a, a version that's going to have some good commentary in it. I have the Oxford commentary on the NRSV, which has just been great. And lots of really, really interesting stuff there. So I'm going to sign off for now. And uh, hopefully next week we get Christopher to come back with us. Thanks so much, guys. Bye.